Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for joining us today. Um, my name is Eric Brown. I work here at the Institute, and I'm delighted to, to convene this panel with a dear old colleague of ours, as well as with Bonnie Glazer from CSIS. The panel uh, is on Australia's strategy in the era of Trump and Xi Jinping. Um, uh, we're delighted to have back Dr. John Lee, who is a senior fellow here at the Institute. I should say that his association with the Institute actually goes all the way back to 2008, uh, when John was writing, among other things, about Asian geopolitics, um, as well as the uh, concept of the Indo-Pacific, and worked a lot on uh, preparing papers on uh, East Asian diplomacy and security issues, as well as uh, uh, the emerging geopolitics of the Bay of Bengal and the Eastern Indian Ocean way back when. Uh, John, as it were, took leave from Hudson Institute to uh, take up a very important role in his own government, serving his own country back in Australia. From 2016 to 2018, he served as the senior national security advisor to the Australian foreign minister, Julie Bishop. And in that role, he uh, served as the principal advisor on Asia and for economic, strategic, and political affairs throughout the Indo-Pacific region. John uh, uh, was also appointed uh, as the foreign minister's lead advisor on the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper, which we'll be discussing uh, quite a bit today, which was the first comprehensive foreign affairs blueprint for Australia since 2003 and written to guide Australia's external engagement for the next 10 years and beyond. And I wanted to say as an official government document, it's very unique because it's very clear about uh, what Australia is, what it wants, uh, what it stands for, and what uh, threatens um, those principles going forward. It emphatically states, among other things, uh, lays out very clearly what might be described as Australia's uh, sources of conduct. It says, our support for political, economic, and religious freedoms, liberal democracy, the rule of law, racial and gender equality, and mutual respect reflect who we are and how we approach the world. And the report is really an important uh, document for all of us uh, interested in the future of liberal democracy to read and a model um, that we uh, here in the United States, uh, I think, should study deeply. Um, uh, and I also just wanted to say thank you as well to Bonnie for being here. Uh, Bonnie is well known around town as an extremely well-informed analyst of Asian geopolitics. Um, she's written widely on any number of issues. Um, and uh, we're delighted to have her here to offer her own thoughts. So with that, John. Well, Eric, thank you for that introduction. And uh, thank you all for giving up your, your lunch time. Um, this is actually the first event I've done since I left uh, government uh, earlier this month. Um, one of the, there are many good things about government. One of the not so good things about government is that you're not allowed to really say anything publicly. So this is a welcome relief for me and uh, getting back to the old life that I once, once led. Um, as Eric mentioned, I entered government in April 2016. Uh, the government in Australia uh, went to an election in July 2016. One of the election promises was to produce a white paper. Uh, as mentioned, we hadn't really had a comprehensive uh, foreign affairs white paper since uh, 2003, so, so I think it was... Uh, a uh, due that Australia produced a document like that. 
Um, when we sort of sat down to think about what a white paper looks like, um, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the term white paper. It's a British sort of term, but it really just means a formal policy document uh, stating um, the principles and long-term uh, basis for foreign policy in the country. But when we sat down to, to think about producing a white paper, um, there are a few principles that we um, came up with. Uh, one, um, as already been said, it should be a, should be a document to uh, guide Australian foreign policy for the next 10 years uh, and beyond. Um, there's actually a notion that in 10 years' time, whoever is in government should review or write a new white paper. So it's not one of these things that, that are meant to last centuries, it's meant to last uh, around a decade. Uh, the second uh, principle that, that we committed to was that we didn't want to produce a document that tried to predict the future. Now, you, know, you, you get all sorts of government agencies and bodies that, that, that do very good work in, in trying to estimate, for example, what 2030 looks like. This is not uh, or was not designed to be uh, something like that. One of the reasons is, is simply that, um, you know, as a guiding policy document, it basically can't predict the future. You're going to get much of it wrong. So you're better off trying to articulate what the broad principles and objectives and values you're trying to promote as opposed to describe what the world or what the region will look like uh, in uh, 2030. Um, as a white paper, it obviously needed to take into account the realities of national resources and national capabilities, or more precisely, the restraints um, on our capabilities. Um, and finally, it, the white paper needed to articulate a set of principles that was acceptable to, obviously, the government, or, or the whole of the government, but also acceptable, or largely acceptable to the Australian population um, and key stakeholders in a population, in our population, and it ideally had to be something which could be acceptable to uh, the opposition in government. Obviously, the opposition will come into government sometime into the future, um, and there's no point producing a comprehensive document uh, when it just leads to them reviewing it or, or, or cancelling it uh, once they get into power. Now, the white paper is there. It is what it is. But obviously, interpretations of uh, the thinking and the strategy behind it will differ. So I would emphasise that I am giving my interpretation of the thinking and strategy behind it. Uh, I in no way speak for the foreign minister or the Australian government more broadly. Uh, if you look through it, one of the most striking uh, lines or passages in the white paper uh, is that it commits Australia to working with liberal democracies and identifies the United States, Japan, South Korea, Indonesia, and India to create a favourable balance of power um, which uh, will promote our interests, with our interests being defined primarily as the maintenance of uh, the international rules-based order and international law. Now, this, this term, working with liberal democracies to create a favourable balance of power, it's not something... Um, that is often, well, that has really been used so explicitly in Australian foreign policy. And so I thought I'd give some explanation or my explanation of, of what is the thinking behind uh, why we put such a uh, large emphasis on that. Now, it's obviously a trite thing to say that 
we live in a time of uncertainty and change, and we always do. Um, I think the more important question is to ask, uh, what is it we ought to be worried about as things are changing, particularly in uh, my region? I don't think it's the mere distribution of power in itself that bothers us. Um, it is not the mere rise of new powers in itself that bothers us. Um, and it's not necessarily even a rise in uh, illiberalism or the decline of democracy in itself uh, that bothers Australia. I think what Australia is worried about is how particularly great powers wield that, that power that they're acquiring. And in particular, how great powers seem, uh, great powers tend to, or have, are gaining an increased appetite to uh, what I would term ignore, circumvent, weaken, um, or alter the international rules-based order and international law. Now, I know this term rules-based order um, can sound very academic and abstract, so I thought I'd put a little bit of content to it. Um, in essence, it's a collection of rules, norms, laws, institutions, and treaties, uh, which protects the rights of uh, countries, no matter how strong or weak or big or small those countries may be. Now, the national rules-based order, in my conception, it doesn't entrench past gains or past pri privileges of uh, dominant nations. It accepts the reality of competition, uh, but what it does, it tries to regulate how nations compete um, and what, is, what constitutes legitimate and illegitimate ways of competing. So if you consider uh, some of the more liberal aspects of the rules-based order, uh, it provides for a greater separation of uh, the economic aims of countries and entities uh, from the strategic and political aims of uh, governments. So, for example, the United States may have the most powerful navy uh, in the region and in the world, but the United States Navy cannot be deployed um, to gain unfair advantages for ExxonMobil uh, you know, in gaining contracts in the region. Likewise, China should not force uh, private or state-owned companies to advance government claims in the South China Sea, which is certainly uh, occurring. Uh, powerful governments should, there should be limitations on the way powerful governments coerce weaker governments to accept economic terms, uh, which they would not otherwise accept. Um, and it is normal and uh, natural to promote one's national companies, all, all countries do it, but you don't use the coercive tools of diplomacy as a government to promote your national uh, companies and your economic interests. The rules-based order has prescriptions for re resolving uh, disputes and disagreements. So Australia uh, was amongst the most vocal critic of uh, Chinese actions in the South China Sea and in particular of Beijing's refusal to accept the arbitration ruling um, in the case against the Philippines. We were so um, because to us this is an example of a great power, a great regional power, uh, ignoring, circumventing, uh, weakening or altering the rules-based order. So we do not oppose Chinese actions simply because uh, we prefer American naval preeminence, we do, but we don't oppose it for that reason. Uh, we oppose it because it weakens that international uh, system and rules-based order. So let me now 
try try and relate this to why we put such an emphasis on working with uh, liberal democracies in a region. Now, I'm personally uh, alarmed at the uh, increased rise of illiberalism in, in Asia and in Indo-Pacific uh, generally, but the white paper is not focused on democracy promotion in itself, and I'm happy to talk about uh, why that's the case if, if there's interest. Uh, but it does recognise that liberal democracies, and I use that term specifically, that is democracies with liberal institutions, uh, it does recognise that liberal democracies do tend to have stronger uh, structural and political commitments to what I've just described as the uh, rules-based order than do countries uh, with either authoritarian political systems or with weak liberal institutions. Liberal institutions provide greater institutional checks against their own governments, defying agreed rules. Uh, and it was no coincidence that the uh, liberal democracies in the Indo-Pacific were completely comfortable uh, with our white paper, whereas the uh, non-liberal democracies uh, were not. Now, the US, Japan, South Korea, and India uh, and to, great ex to an increasing extent, Indonesia share the same sorts of interests and outlooks, uh, and they were amongst the strongest supporters of the document that was released. The reality is that these countries that I just mentioned, not yet Indonesia, but possibly so, are uh, significant um, militaries, military, have significant militaries in their own right. So obviously, in the reality of... Um, of, of power politics, you've got to work with the countries that have capabilities. Uh, the elephant in the room is obviously China, and as the white paper was produced, um, in the past, when it came to public documents, Australia, like many other countries, has a tendency to not even use the, the word or the, the country China um, in identifying some of the challenges um, that, that we think we're facing. Uh, if you look through the white paper, it's quite obvious that um, Australia accepts there is a need to counter some aspects of um, the way China uses its power. Yeah. Countering and balancing is not the same as containing. Um, countering and balancing is uh, done to place restraints on the way a country exercises its power. It is not there to contain the power of that, of that country or the accumulation of power in itself. Now, in my view, if you look at China's grand strategy to the point, to, to the extent that they have one, um, I think it has some of the following characteristics. One, China knows that there is no effective balance in the Indo-Pacific uh, without the United States. But at the same time, it knows that uh, China cannot gain or gain preeminence if the United States remains fully engaged. So despite its uh, very confident rhetoric, I think Beijing is well aware of its military and economic uh, weaknesses vis-a-vis um, -vis the United States. So as a result, China's grand strategy, as I mentioned to the extent that it has one, is to ease uh, the United States out of Asia uh, without a major conflict. Now, in China's view, this can be achieved or advanced in a number of ways. One, um, 
if you're the Chinese, you uh, acquire the capacity to inflict prohibitive costs on the, United, on the United States Navy to the extent that the US would be unlikely to contemplate any kind of military action. Um, much of this is based on the calculation that the region is not um, as important to the United States as it is to China. So the calculation is that um, suffering significant uh, economic or military costs uh, is not important enough to the core values of the United States to risk the loss of major military assets or significant economic loss or a substantial number of uh, casualties. Now, once China acquires this capability to inflict so-called prohibitive costs in the event of conflict, uh, the US reluctance to use its military uh, power will degrade the credibility of American alliances in a region or degrade the standing of America as a uh, reliable ally. Now, if and when this occurs, um, allies and partners will naturally rely less and less on their security relationship with the United States, um, and they will, become, they will begin to take a much more neutral or uncommitted um, position in the event of any disagreement, let alone conflict, uh, with the United States. This is particularly the case with, uh, for countries with substantial economic relations uh, with China. With China. Now, this is complemented by attempts by China to use economic inducements and, and in some respect, in some circumstances, uh, coercion to uh, neutralize allies. Uh, China tries to do this by offering rewards and incentives to uh, stakeholders within democratic societies to reject robust action against China. So, for example, uh, there's a heavy targeting of business groups or influential individuals which is certainly occurring in Australia. Now, the idea there is to, um, as much as possible, paralyse democracies by dividing stakeholders and making robust and decisive uh, action by political leaders um, extremely difficult. Now, without the robust alliances and security relationships, the US will find it increasingly difficult, uh, will, find it in will find it very difficult to remain in uh, fully engaged in a region, and in 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 the view of the Chinese, uh, this is the way you ease America out of the region without a major conflict. And of course, if the U.S. does step back, as it steps back, um, vacuums are always quickly filled, and China sees itself as a country capable of filling that vacuum. Now, in my view, this is China's, uh, China's plan to win, if you like, um, with a weaker military and still a smaller, less advanced economy um, without a shot being fired. Now, there are obvious strategic dangers to China um, or for China in, in pursuing its approach. One, how do you know what is prohibitive costs um, um, for the United States? I think if you look at United States history, many countries have miscalculated um, the extent to which the United States will bear costs um, if pushed. That, so that's a potential uh, um, miscalculation by China, which would be very dangerous. Uh, China's neighbours, such as Japan, possibly South Korea, 
uh, will not just stand by idly at, on the sidelines. Um, and and I, I think the Chinese are starting to realise that um, it is not just um, an issue between themselves and Washington. And if the US does step back strategically as China hopes, um, I don't think the Chinese have thought through what kind of order or disorder results um, as countries go about uh, rearranging their own security uh, um, um, organisations. Now, there are a number of ways, in my view, um, we can respond to the Chinese strategy, and uh, I think the white paper has some elements um, of how one can respond. One, you can demonstrate to China that the US and allies are far better placed uh, at inflicting prohibitive military or, or economic costs on China uh, than China is able to inflict on the US. And we had a defense white paper um, released in 2015. Uh, it wasn't as explicit, but uh, it, it, it really was trying to make the point that Australia is building up its military um, to the extent that it is a factor that must be taken into account by other countries in the region, particularly to, uh, with respect to the maritime approaches um, to Australia's north and northwest. Now, conflict would obviously, obviously be devastating to the United States and other countries in the region, but you can argue that a conflict or um, an economic disaster would be an existential threat. Um, to the Chinese Communist Party, uh, given the uh, reliance by the CCP on uh, the unimpeded functioning of its economy uh, to remain in power. I think it's important to demonstrate to China that its actions are having the reverse effect, that is, its actions are actually strengthening US um, alliances and security partnerships rather than weakening them. And I think when you look at Japan and certainly Australia, um, the evidence is pretty clear that, um, to put it very bluntly, Chinese actions have actually led to the strengthening of those two sets of uh, bilateral alliances, not the weakening of them. And finally, I think you've got to uh, convince the Chinese that its continued uh, economic rise um, can only really occur with substantial US engagement, that without substantial US engagement, the subsequent order or disorder that results uh, it's not in China's interest. Now, at a general uh, strategic level, I think China also tries to simplify the region um, to its advantage. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. If you look at China's um, strategic relationships, um, it has no genuine allies in the sense of, of, of what an ally actually is. It's got few enduring strategic partners. Um, so in their position, which is understandable, it seeks to reduce the number of uh, significant players in the region and tries to make it a competition between itself and the United States with other countries on the sidelines. That's just what you do when you don't have as many allies or partners as your competitor. So the white paper looks to explicitly bring in more players. Um, I'm, I'm not implying that these players will be decisive, but it tries to bring in more players to uh, complicate the situation, if you like. And so the emphasis on Japan, uh, South Korea, India, and Indonesia um, goes some way towards that. 
Now, the aim, and certainly Australia's aim, in my view, it is not to build a grand coalition against China, which, which isn't possible in any kind of military or strategic sense. Um, the thinking is more that the more active strategic players you have that are in broad agreement with your interests and your direction, the better off you are. These countries do not have to move in unison with each other, but if they do uh, play significant roles, even independently, but are moving in, in a broad, similar direction, uh, I think that's to Australia's interests. Uh, let me just uh, conclude with, in, with uh, the economic narrative. Uh, and, I, and in my view, this is also part of China's approach. Uh, let me conclude with the economic narrative which uh, China promotes, um, which to its advantage, and it's understandable they do, uh, but which I think needs to be countered as a matter of policy and reality. Now, one uh, narrative is that China's continued rise and economic preeminence is inevitable. Um, and you may not like what China does, but there's no point resisting because that is just what the future looks like. Now, I think in countering this, and, and this is not about um, pointing out flaws in China just for the sake of it, this is just about trying to describe the reality so policymakers can make informed decisions. You obviously have to look at the Chinese political economy and its economy. It's not quite there yet, but it has very similar uh, debts, debt problems and, and structural problems as, say, what the Japanese economy encountered. And we have to remember that Japan was a uh, well-functioning and uh, rich country by the time it encountered those problems. Now, China has uh, ways of stabilizing its economy, its command economy. There are advantages to it. Um, for example, it, uh, even though it, um, it, there is a, a heavy debt uh, issue for its economy, um, even though there is quite enormous misallocation of capital from an efficiency point of view, uh, China can do several things that, for example, Western or even Asian open economies can't do. For example, they can uh, prevent uh, capital flight. You know, they can close their capital account to prevent capital flight. In Western economies, if you looked at what happened in 2007, um, lending stopped because there was a crisis of confidence in the economy. China has the short-term advantage that it can force financial institutions to continue to lend. So liquidity doesn't come to a halt like it did in 2007. And China has shown time and time and again that it has that capability of keeping what is a relatively inefficient system going. Uh, and it's done that for a long time. Now, however, there are transactional and frictional costs to, um, to the, the political economy that, that China has. For example, if you you can force liquidity to, to continue to flow, but that means that you keep throwing capital at uh, inefficient um, uh, practices and there's no real um, incentive for the macro or the micro economy in China to substantially reform. Now, the reason why this is important is because um, as uh, the transactional and stabilization costs grow, which they are in China, um, the cost of keeping that system going grows. And so you allocate more and more nation national wealth to keeping that system going. 
what you're seeing in China already is that there's a greater contestation of for national resources. So you look at even their military budget, for example, uh, five years ago and for the previous 15 years before that, it was growing at 15 to 20%. Uh, now it's growing at uh, between 6 and 9%, which is still very rapid. But as time goes on, there will be a greater competition for resources as all countries face uh, within the Chinese system. Uh, many of you really already know about China's ageing de demographics, uh, which are uh, amongst the worst in human history, but certainly on a scale, it is the worst in human history, uh, and the country is very grossly unprepared for that. Um, even if you look at the uh, Chinese economy, China has moved up the value and technological chain extremely impressively, but China still remains a net importer of technology, know-how, and expertise and innovation. Strategically, as I mentioned, China has no enduring allies uh, or strategic partners. They have partners of convenience, and many of these partners still remain problematic for China, uh, North Korea, Russia, Pakistan, Laos, Cambodia, etc. Uh, another narrative that China puts forward um, is that its economic size and role gives it a leverage um, over every country or almost every country in a region. Now, once again, clearly China is an indispensable economic power, but if you look, in it, you look uh, a little bit closer in, in terms of the economic structure in our region, uh, despite the remarkable advances that China has made, as I mentioned, China is not yet a major net exporter of technology, IP and innovation. Uh, it needs advanced economies uh, in my view, more than advanced economies need China. Now, even a role of Chinese capital and investment in a regional and world market can often be overstated in size and in quality. Uh, for example, China is not uh, one of the top five sources of credit um, of, of foreign direct investment in Asia. Um, it tends to be a leading source of foreign direct investment in the inland developing economies of Asia. We, we find it hard to attract capital, but in the maritime, um, more innovative and open economies, China is not in the top five sources of um, foreign direct investment for these countries. And finally, uh, the huge consumer markets in the United States and the European Union still uh, tower above that of the consumer market in China. Um, this is important because if you look at the nature of, uh, of the global economy, there is too much production and not enough consumption. So it's really net consumption, or the capacity to absorb end products, um, which I think makes economies uh, important to other countries. China clearly is a, a, a very important source of growth in final demand, but the point I'm trying to make is that the perception that China is now deriving the regional economy is not entirely accurate. It is the most attractive source of growth for the regional economy, but you wouldn't say that it has become the most important economy um, for the export-producing countries, which are most of the maritime countries in, uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Now, I'm not making an extreme case that China's um, achievements are false or that they're fake. What I'm really trying to say in the white paper uh, implies this is that the region is more contested 
um, it is a more crowded region. Uh, as policymakers, as in, in, in the Australian context, uh, we need to resist the temptation just to see it as uh, a sort of arm's length competition between the US and China. Uh, the more like-minded plays that we can get into the uh, on, onto the chessboard, as it were, uh, the more that is to Australia's advantage, um, and the, the more likely it is that we can uh, shape the way China exercises its uh, growing power. I'll um, I'll stop there. Um, I'll allow Bonnie to to respond favourably or not, or otherwise <laughs> to to some of these comments. Yeah. Thank you very much, Bonnie. Thank you so much for having me uh, at uh, at Hudson uh, on the panel. And I'll try to be brief so we can have a broader uh, conversation. The Australian uh, foreign policy white paper was issued, I think, at a very important and interesting time because the Trump administration was really uh, beginning to think in uh, some serious terms about its own strategy uh, in, in the region. And uh, of course, we heard, uh, in, it was really about the sort of fall of last year the thinking about the free and open Indo-Pacific uh, strategy. And so that paper was very widely read in Washington, and I think in, informed and continues to inform the way the Trump administration is thinking about its approach to the region. So when John was talking about establishing a favorable balance of power uh, that will promote our interests, uh, emphasis on uh, rules-based order, uh, on international law, um, on um, protecting every country's sovereignty regarding, uh, regardless of the size of these countries. These are things that are being echoed, I think, uh, by the United States. Now, we, of course, do not have a tradition of having a foreign policy white paper. We have other ways that we uh, enunciate our, uh, our foreign policy. We have seen I would say a little, not enough, uh, but some indications as to the thinking of the administration about the free and open Indo-Pacific. And I should say it's no secret that the, the term itself really comes from Japan. Um, and <clears throat> in addition, of course, to Australia, the, uh, the United States has, in fact, uh, looked to Japan for uh, its, its ideas and its approach to the region as well. And what we have seen so far is, of course, the president's uh, speech when he was out at, uh, uh, at, at APEC uh, in, uh, in Da Nang, and then followed by the national security strategy, which has about a page and a half. Um, I understand we eventually will be seeing more, um, uh, particularly in the form of speeches. Uh, it looks to me like this is a little bit slow going, uh, but of course, it was, if we really think back to the Obama administration, the time from the annunciation of the rebalance or the pivot, and we had Secretary Clinton's uh, foreign, poli foreign policy uh, paper. And then, uh, of course, subsequently, we had speeches by our national security advisor, Tom Donnell, and, and uh, the president then in Canberra, uh, making his very uh, important speech. And uh, so I think this is very much uh, a process of, uh, of evolution, though we are putting meat on the bones. Uh, I don't think it's a bumper sticker, um, and uh, some people say that. But I think what we're really trying to do is find synergies with other countries. And 
As I travel around the region, uh, many officials from countries and also their diplomats who come here, they ask the question, I think, to me and also to US officials, uh, you know, what's the role of my country <laughs> in your strategy? Uh, and when I talk to US officials, I say, so, so what's, what's your answer to this? And, and the answer is, uh, you know, we, we don't want uh, other countries necessary to play a, a role. What we want is really what John was just talking about, is to have um, uh, countries that are like-minded, uh, shared vision, uh, principles, the things we want to promote in the region, and then find ways that we can, we can work together. Uh, you may have seen the US uh, and Japan just recently uh, announced a, um, uh, alternative financing um, mechanisms uh, and some funding to support uh, infrastructure uh, financing uh, in, in the region. And that's just one example of ways that the US hopes to partner uh, with countries in, uh, in the Indo-Pacific. So um, uh, of course, there has been also, I would point out, that our Deputy Assistant Secretary uh, over at State, Alex Wong, has recently talked about the Indo-Pacific in a, I think it was um, at the State Department, he did a media briefing. And it's interesting this, how he talks about definition of free and uh, open. So again, overlaps with many of the things you were talking about. Freedom of commerce, freedom of navigation, free markets, uh, that we are open for business, um, and of course, uh, greater uh, transparency. And I appreciate your point about not um, asking uh, countries in the, in the region to choose and not seeking to contain China. Um, no country in the region really wants to be forced to choose between uh, the US and China. And US officials say countries can be, uh, in the Indo-Pacific, can be a member of the, the BRI club, the Obor club, <laughs> or, uh, or um, you know, the free and open Indo-Pacific. I hope we don't really use this acronym FOIP, because <laughs> some countries are using it, but I really don't like it. Um, <clears throat> I personally think it was a mistake that our um, uh, prior Secretary of State, uh, uh, Tillerson, when he spoke at CSIS last year, used the term, you said we should counter uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. And that really uh, brought to mind uh, much more of a sort of containment type strategy. And I think it's better to talk about um, competing and creating alternatives um, and not necessarily uh, countering. Surely the US won't be able to match dollar for dollar what the Chinese are doing in uh, the Belt and Road uh, Initiative. Uh, so I think the free and open Pacific is something that can be uh, very flexible. There can be various geometric uh, mechanisms that we can work together. And uh, in the military sphere, we certainly see um, our countries um, exercising um, in uh, the Malabar um, uh, exercises with um, India. Uh, and I think we will have more diplomatic configurations as well. Many people talk about the Quad. Um, I don't know if you want to talk more about that. Uh, but I think there's a tendency to conflate the Quad in the free and open Pacific, which I think is unfortunate, the Quad, in my mind, establishes sort of the boundaries uh, of the uh, Indo-Pacific. But it is really critically important what is inside those boundaries. Uh, and I, I think ASEAN centrality and the role of Southeast Asia uh, remain uh, very important. So going forward, I think um, both of our governments, uh, in cooperation with other like-minded uh, countries, need to 
uh, I think, do a better job. I think Australia's done a better job than we have so far in the sort of strategic communication strategy of what are, what are our interests, how are we uh, pursuing them. And uh, certainly resourcing is, in, is insufficient um, as well. Um, I noticed uh, as I was traveling this past week in China and Korea that uh, there's a, uh, an, an Asia Reassurance Initiative Act that's just been put forward in Congress, which uh, would authorize uh, $1.5 billion for five years to enhance U.S. presence in the Indo-Pacific and provides $150 million for five years to fund democracy programs, rule of law, and civil society support. And that's one example of, uh, of, of a, a, a good development, but we clearly need more. And then finally, I will uh, comment briefly on uh, John's discussion about Chinese grant strategy, which I, I very much agree with. I'm not sure I would um, uh, that I feel the need anymore to caveat it by saying to the extent there is one, uh, because I think there is. Um, and I think that even before uh, China has uh, really strengthened its military economic and political power over the last 10 years. I mean, my uh, experience with China goes way, way back. And the Chinese have been, cr been critical about alliances for a long, long time, um, even when it was just uh, a talking point because China knew it didn't have any capability to really have an influence on those alliances. Uh, the Chinese term for many years has been that US alliances in the region are Cold War relics. Uh, but now I think uh, the Chinese have more capability, and, and I think that they do uh, have some strategies to try and weaken those alliances and, as you say, ultimately uh, push the United States out of the region. Uh, we saw in 2014 when Xi Jinping uh, was at uh, the Conference on Interact and Interaction and Confidence Building Measures in Asia and called for uh, essentially the region to be organized by Asians, uh, summarized as sort of the Asia for Asians uh, label. Uh, we have not really heard that since then, but I ultimately think that this is uh, China's concept for the region. And if you read Xi Jinping's speech at Boao, um, and Boao has always been a conference that focuses on Asia, um, of course there's no mention uh, of the United States having any role uh, in the region. Um, so I think that the Chinese are going to continue uh, to try and weaken our alliances where they see opportunities. I think right now they see the biggest opportunity in the U.S.-Korea alliance. And I was just uh, in Korea, came back last night. Uh, and of course, the recent uh, the developments that have taken place in the last 24 hours um, uh, are of great interest uh, to China. And I think that they see opportunities as well as risks. Uh, and it's fascinating that the Chinese proposal, which they have pushed all along of this freeze for freeze, that the North Koreans should freeze their programs while the United States should freeze our exercises with Korea, so essentially the latter part of that um, fell off uh, the, uh, the list of, of things that, that North Korea demanded or was interested in getting out of this, uh, out of this summit. The North Koreans said, nothing about uh, US force presence, US military exercises. Uh, and uh, so it looks like what, uh, that what is important or a priority uh, to China and what is a priority to North Korea, uh, there, there's some frac fractures there. There's certainly some, some fissures. And it will be, be interesting to see 
uh, going forward, whether there are additional ones. And then just the last thing I wanted to comment on and hope maybe John will say more about is um, uh, the South China Sea. Uh, and uh, we saw just in, uh, uh, I think it was last week, there was a report of China giving warnings to three Australian ships as I, they were heading uh, toward Vietnam. Um, probably nothing new in that, uh, in that regard, because I think the Chinese are warning uh, aircraft and ships from so many uh, uh, countries. Uh, but uh, I, I think in the aftermath of the 2016 ruling, um, none of our countries have really done enough to take advantage of, uh, of the nature of that ruling uh, to really promote international uh, law and to deter China from taking additional uh, steps in the South China Sea, such as these challenges to freedom of navigation, um, but also uh, to continue to miller militarize the South China Sea. It was uh, noteworthy that uh, in the Trump-Abe statement, uh, that they called for that the code of conduct should include demilitarization uh, of these islands. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a tall order. Uh, but we continue to see uh, the Chinese, there was now a report that they landed um, military cargo aircraft uh, on Mr. Freef in January. Um, and I think it's only a matter of time before we see fighter jets, other rotations and deployments, and the Chinese actually operating um, out of these uh, out of these outposts. There's been all these rumors, of course, that the United States has asked Australia to uh, not only have presence operations, but to also operate inside uh, 12 uh, nautical miles. But we haven't seen that yet. Um, I don't know whether there's anything you'd like to comment on that. But um, you know, what, what else can we do to strengthen uh, the uh, international law on close, um, et cetera, in the South China Sea and deter China from um, declaring baselines, ADIS, um, and actually um, continuing to militarize these outposts in ways that I think is uh, very dangerous for, uh, for Australia, for the United States, um, and other countries. And then there's the report about the potential military base in Vanuatu, which um, I'm sure Canberra is also quite worried about. So I'll stop there. Oh, that's great. Thank you. John, there's actually lots of yeah, I'll, 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 let me just start with South China Sea. Um, I, I won't comment on phone ops, the uh, 12 nautical miles issue that keeps coming up, so <laughs> does suggest something. Um, one of the frustrations I think Australia has, and I think the United States as well, is that uh, it's difficult, I mean, you know, first of all, it's difficult to come up with successful countering solutions to the South China Sea because it's it's kind of still short of military action or military it's it's not yet a military situation right so it's not about coming up with war games that what you do in the South China Sea it's about that so-called gray zone um, um, area where China is uh, China is using all sorts of tactics, militias, um, fishing boats, etc., to make good on its claims to the South China Sea. But what, one of the frustrating things for Australia is that uh, a couple of things. First of all, uh, Bonnie mentioned the arbitration decision. Um, as mentioned, Australia came out very hard on the arbitration decision that this was final and binding and a statement of national law. But it's very hard to go further because um, as it happens, Philippines sort of put it aside. 
you know, and they were the primary country involved in the case. But more broadly, um, the Southeast Asian countries don't tend to want to be explicitly uh, involved in, in a way that may um, put them in a difficult position with China on the South China Sea. Now, whilst that's understandable, uh, it makes it very difficult for other countries like Australia and the United States to um, initiate robust diplomatic and, and other sorts of actions that may uh, counter Chinese actions. Um, there's also a source of frustration that, um, as a collective, uh, you know, Australia is still quite um, um, committed to ASEAN centrality, and you know what that means is that. ASEAN is allowed to have the nominal lead in diplomatic affairs, including security issues in a region. But the problem widening is that ASEAN, as we all know, is quite divided, and China has been very successful doing that, and that paralyzes the consensus model of decision making. Now, the, the problem is that that would be okay if the facts on the ground weren't changing, but as Bonnie mentioned, um, you know, every every day, every month, the facts on the ground in the South China Sea change. So paralysis is not just no progress, it's actually going backwards because China is, as for example, you know, while this code of conduct, for example, is being negotiated between ASEAN and China, I mean, everyone knows what China's doing. They're just delaying a code of conduct. There won't be a meaningful code of conduct, but whilst it's doing that, it continues to both um, divide ASEAN, so it doesn't come to any decisive position, and it continues to change facts on the ground. So where I'm getting at, and this leads to other things like the Quad, um, it's, you know, the, the Quad is, well, first of all, with the Quad, the Quad, um, as Bonnie mentioned, it, it describes four like-minded countries geographically, but also uh, politically and diplomatically, strategically, four countries that are fairly like-minded. At this stage, the Quad is a fairly low-level affair. I mean, th they had the first meeting of the Quad. Um, it was a, you know, fairly senior officials from countries, but it was, it was a fairly um, uh, modest meeting. It, it wasn't like there were any solid decisions to come out of the Quad. Um, the best decision, I'm not, and I'm not being facetious, is to agree to meet again. And that's important because you're building the kind of uh, infrastructure of, of the Quad, and it may be upgraded um, if, if there is appetite for it and there's a demand for it, uh, or if demand is created for it. To me, the ASEAN countries are extremely worried about the Quad. The Quad wasn't created um, because of the inaction of ASEAN countries. But I would say to ASEAN countries, once again, this is my view, that um, if ASEAN continues to prove an extremely ineffective diplomatic player when it comes to interests that are their core interests, then other countries are naturally going to gravitate towards other kinds of configurations. It doesn't mean that ASEAN uh, will be, will be sidelined or will become irrelevant. But you know, countries will gravitate towards groupings that produce um, more favorable outcomes or more proactive outcomes. So, so I do think it is in the interest of the ASEAN countries, if they want to maintain ASEAN centrality, um, to be a more effective uh, organization. 
One quick follow-up on that. I mean, you mentioned the gray zone, the maritime gray zone in the South China Sea. I mean, it is getting grayer and grayer and grayer. Where, from in Australia's perspective, uh, should we, in fact, begin to draw red lines and, and assert what our core interests are um, in that part of the world? I suppose you can look, look at things first. First of all, you can look at things from a military strategic point of view. You know, red lines, a red line, a red line would be something like a situation where um, you are getting to the point where significant, possibly prohibitive costs can be imposed on naval action by United States or other countries. But that, that is a strategic or military red line. Um, other sorts of non-military non red lines, you know, if China actually starts to um, try to operationalize its claimed ownership, so, for example, if China actually tries to operationalize um, an air defense zone, right. you know that I I think that would um, be a significant an, an action that would uh, change calculations in Australia and probably in in the United States. Yeah. Question uh, that Bonnie brought up: uh, the Quad. Yes, there's a tendency to conflate it with the FOIP strategy. Um, I had never heard that acronym before. Um, there is a tendency, um, and yet there's a number of uh, actors, both in Washington and Tokyo and in Canberra and in Delhi, that are acting, that are asking the Quad to play a much greater role today. Uh, not just a strategic role, but there's now more and more discussions about the Quad and also playing a geoeconomic role in creating those alternatives to BRI, among other things, going forward. What role do you see the Quad playing? Uh, in the larger free and open Pacific strategy, uh, particularly uh, given the dynamics that John had described. And going back as well, I wanted to ask one question of you. Um, the Quad, as we know, is revenant. It had uh, uh, originally emerged back in 2008 and then quickly fell apart during the Obama administration. Um, Australia was the first country to exit um, the, the, the discussions. Um, and that's uh, ruffled a lot of feathers, particularly in New Delhi. And I wanted to ask you specifically about Australia's views of um, its relationships with India. And uh, there's been a volte face in Australian policy and diplomacy toward India, I think, in the last year and a half. Um, but I wanted to hear more from you about your thoughts on that and where that might be headed. Uh, uh, like, like probably, I'm you know, being fairly blunt, like probably every country um, you know, Australia probably finds India a very frustrating um, country and partner to, to work with because things move very slowly. Uh, there's often disagreement about things that don't matter. It's, it's, but nevertheless, India, if you look at its size, its geography, its capabilities, particularly its naval capabilities and its potential economic um, capabilities, it is, you know, already a significant player, and it's more a matter of Indian will and coordination, whether they, how significant they want to be um, leading up into the future. The Australian view of India and the Quad is that, um, you know, without trivialising it, I mean, India is a, is a uh, upside, is, is a bet with upside and no real downside. You know, we try to bring India in because it's like-minded. It's moving the same direction in terms of what it wants. Um, if we can make something happen bilaterally or quadrilaterally, 
then that's a good thing. If we try and we fail, then we're no worse off. I mean, that, that states it fairly trivially, but in a sense, I think that's the kind of view that we have um, with India. Um, the Quad in particular, you know, I, 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 the Quad, as I mentioned at the moment, it's, it was a pretty modest meeting between senior officials, nowhere near a ministerial meeting, um, senior bureaucratic officials. But I do think the Quad will be upgraded if there's need for it. And, you know, to be blunt about it, if, um, if there are collective concerns, growing concerns of Chinese behaviour amongst the four Quad countries, well, it's likely that in some senses the Quad will continue to, to evolve uh, and be upgraded. Because that, that is just a kind of structural incentive. If, if um, it's perceived that there's no real demand for the Quad, then it will probably exist only at a fairly, you know, kind of relatively low level, um, um, as a le relatively low level meeting of officials. Um, the Australia-India, you know, in, I th India is really the, the one holding out in, in the sense that India already has very good um, relations and strategic um, actions or strategic understandings with Japan and the United States, not so much with Australia. Um, I think the Indians are yet to be convinced of two things. One, that um, we, of, of what value we bring in addition to Japan and Australia, uh, Japan and the United States, and I do think that that is something which Australia needs to work quite hard at to prove our value, if you like. The second consideration from the Indian point of view is that they've, as Eric uh, mentioned, they've never forgotten that we pulled out of the Quad and the Indians still have a view that uh, we, um, you know, we, we may turn towards China in a future time. And so from the Indian point of view, the Indian calculation is why um, put diplomatic and other efforts into a quadrilateral if they're not quite sure where Australia's heading? Now, I, I happen to think that Indian view is incorrect, and, you know, I've dealt now with both sides of government, and, and I don't, there is no real turn to China. Um, but nevertheless, that is something that the Indians have as a perception, and uh, it's, it's quite uh, enduring. Bonnie, did you have something to add? I, I think we have to emphasize the Quad is comprised of democracies, right? So there is just that risk where other governments come into power that um, are either more or less enthusiastic about this configuration. And uh, India is a little reluctant, frankly, to be all in on something that they felt um, uh, that their interests had been harmed when Australia pulled out. Uh, and even though the current Australian government might be very committed, no, we don't know what would happen in the future, and I can't certainly guarantee what, what my government uh, would do. But I think for the time being, John is right, there will be more of an emphasis, I think, on the, um, the geoeconomics, as you mentioned, Eric. I, I think there's interest in trying to find ways to finance infrastructure in, in the Indo-Pacific. Um, I don't know if we're talking to Australia about that, but we are talking with Japan, and do, so there's U.S.-Japan mechanisms, there's Japan-India mechanisms, and so we'll be working together on that. I would foresee that there will be uh, some coordinated diplomatic statements 
if needed, uh, if there are various things to react to, uh, as John uh, mentioned. I, I personally expect there will be less in the military sphere, um, uh, but that will be quad-related. Um, uh, uh, somebody might put forward the idea of having a quad exercise in the South China Sea, but in the absence of a provocation, I just I doubt uh, that that's, uh, that that's going to happen. Uh, but um, nevertheless, um, the fact that uh, the diplomatic discussion is initiated, and I think that these countries will continue to meet on the sidelines of other multilateral meetings, uh, maybe at the Shangri-La, who knows, um, upcoming uh, next month, um, or actually probably early June. Uh, so there will be, uh, there'll be opportunities. We have a lot of shared interests, uh, but in the absence of uh, uh, steps by China uh, that would be seen as very harmful to interests. I, th I think it'll also be fairly low key. I, I just quickly mention as well, the Quad has an important, perhaps unintended, but an important signaling significance. I mean, it's very clear to me that China is quite paranoid about the Quad. It doesn't quite know where the Quad will lead. Okay. Um, frankly, that's not a bad thing, because it's a signal that if you keep on going, well, there is every chance the Quad may lead to a place that, that um, you would not want it to lead. Right. So that can be quite useful. Right. Right. We've got some time for uh, uh, open discussion, and I'd really love to solicit some questions from the audience. Uh, yeah, uh, Abe, um, if you could wait for the microphone to come around, and if you don't mind, please identify yourself. Uh, Abe Shulsky, I'm a senior fellow here. Uh, I was just wondering, um, with respect to Taiwan, there's a sort of change going on, it seems, in, in this country with the uh, upgrading of relations, relaxing a lot of these uh, very strict restrictions we had had on who can go there and who can talk to them and that sort of thing. And I was just wondering whether... Uh, there's any similar sort of uh, development in uh, in Australia? I wouldn't say there's. I would say there is a expansion of current diplomatic and other interactions. In, where we're at with Taiwan, which we're actually trying to hold the ground that we want to hold, that we've always held, the Chinese are putting enormous pressure on Australia to close down everything with Taiwan. Um, and you may have heard a few incidents where. Um, you know, the Chinese have been extremely disruptive at events hosted by Australia that Taiwanese delegations have traditionally always attended. So to answer your question where we're at, um, we are trying to hold the ground where, we're, where we always have been. We're trying to define what our One China policy means. China's trying to define for us what our One China policy means. Currently, we have held the ground. But uh, I can tell you that the pressure from the Chinese is uh, continual and relentless, relentless and intense. Sir, here in the second row. Thank you very much. Dong Guiyu with China Review News Agency of Hong Kong. Um, Secretary Pompeo has proposed switch, uh, switching Admiral uh, uh, Harry Harry's uh, ambassador position from Australia to South Korea. Um, do you think 
is there any implication for the North Korea issue or U.S.-China relations because of this switch? Thanks. Whether, I don't know if you're implying that that decision was motivated by concerns about China, I would say no. Uh, Admiral Harris, uh, I think, was prepared uh, to take up the position in Australia and then was asked uh, to, uh, to be our ambassador to, uh, to Korea. Uh, I think that the Trump administration has not found an appropriate person for that job. And it has been empty for some time. And I think there is a, a sense that there's a pressing need uh, to fill that job. And my guess is that uh, they think that uh, they will have maybe less difficulty in finding um, a solid, appropriate person for, uh, for Australia. Um, it's certainly not intended uh, to be a slight uh, to our allies in uh, Canberra. I just think that um, since Admiral Harris was willing to take the job in South Korea, and it, it is that that position is empty at a particularly sensitive time, uh, that there really is a sense that, that we should that we should fill it. I I, I hope that they very soon announce a uh, a person that we will be sending to uh, to Australia as well, uh, but. The fact that Admiral Harris has had a tough stance on China, I doubt, is really a factor. Uh, and uh, in some ways, the Koreans themselves may feel a little bit uncomfortable um, as they are trying to improve their relations with China, uh, which have been under a lot of stress because of China's reaction to the deployment of FAD in Seoul. Um, and they are trying to work that out. Um, and they have not made all that much progress, um, honestly. Uh, and the economic measures that were imposed on, uh, on South Korea really remain in place. And so I don't think the Koreans are looking for a reason to have more tension in their relationship with China. And sometimes they really feel caught between China and, and the United States. Uh, so um, I wouldn't be surprised if there are some concerns in some circles. Uh, in Seoul. That said, um, they're getting a very solid person as ambassador um, who I think um, has experience not only as somebody uh, having been commander of the Pacific, but somebody who's served in the region, understands the different dynamics uh, of the region, which are very complicated because there's a lot of countries with very diverse interests. Um, and I think uh, he's going to be a very good, a good spokesman for the United States there. So the end of the day, I think the South Koreans will end up very happy with him. I think we'll have to see the next steps will be when the Trump, when President Trump meets with Kim Jong-un. Uh, I, I doubt that we will actually see Admiral Harris in place by then. Um, uh, he has to be nominated, of course, have confirmation hearings, and uh, it, it probably will take some time. So I doubt that he will be a huge force in the run-up to that, to that summit, which will really be the next signal as to where we are headed with North Korea. Thank you. Sir, third row. 
I'm interested in your thoughts on how the debate in Australia is evolving um, relative to China. In this, I'm thinking of the Dossieri case, uh, different things brought up by the Silent Invasion book. Um, uh, so so how, how is the debate in Australia potentially would it affect Australia's external relations with China and the United States? Um, I would certainly say it's, it's, you know, when it comes to foreign interference, particularly by China, I think at the moment, the debate in Australia is kind of ground zero in the world, right? As in, this, it is where the debate is at at the moment. And I think a lot of countries are, are watching it. Where it's at, um, there's a growing consciousness that uh, efforts by China to um, play a certain role in Australian domestic politics is real and that it's not just a fabrication by paranoid people or, or you know, some sort of politically motivated um, issue. It's, it's been an issue within, it's been an issue for our government for a long time, it's just that this first time it's kind of gone public and it's also the first time that we're introducing legislation to try to stop that. Um, the, I mean, on, on the legislation itself, I mean, it was, you know, a lot of it, um, it's, it's, I know a lot of people link the legislation, legislation to Chinese activities. I think it's more that Chinese activity is just expose the weakness of our legis legislative framework. Because in Australia at the moment, you either have crimes against espionage, which you know are very high-level things, or there's nothing. Right? There's kind of nothing in between. So I think there is a, from the government's point of view, I think there is a desire to, um, to, to clear up that situation and actually repair that institutional failing. Um, back to the China issue itself. Um, what was once viewed as completely, well, activities that were once viewed as completely benign are not viewed as completely benign by much of the public, um, in my view, with some justification. Um, so it's, it's an awkward, it creates an awkward dynamic or awkward diplomacy with China, but I think that's just what has to happen. So here in the front row. Hey, Paul Huang from the Epoch Times. Dr. Lee, you used the word prohibited course a lot to describe how China could deter US military intervention in the Asia Pacific region. The topic is very well discussed. A lot of uh, material and anal analysis going into this subject, but I'm interested in prohibited course in terms of Australia. What could China do to Australia? They will be con that Australia will be con will consider prohibited course. That basically China will make Australia do do its bidding, like economic economic sanctions, embargoes, it's, military actions. It's it's hard to say because in demo democratic countries where there are lots of stakeholders and and parties change, you know, government changes hands. They all have different views on what is tolerable and what, what is not. Um, I would say more generally, though, that the greater the concern 
um, with respect to what China is doing in the region and how that negatively impacts our long-term interests, the higher the threshold we have, well, the more that, that the country as a whole uh, will be prepared to suffer some pain in pursuit of you know, what they consider to, to be their interests. Um, so, I mean, it's just it's impossible to say because it really depends on, on what has happened, who's in power, what China has done or hasn't done. Um, it, it's impossible to say what is pretty of cost. But that's, that's also my point about the problem of this approach, that it, it opens up a very strong possibility of miscalculation because, you know, it is very difficult to understand what is a pretty of cost. Um, so even applied to the United States, I mean, it's, I can't tell you what a prohibitive cost for the United States is, and I don't think the Chinese can either. And, and that is the danger of that kind of approach. In the back row with the registration. Hi, um, Mark Binfield, uh, contract support at the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. Um, I'm, I was wondering, uh, the polling suggests that there's likely to be a change in government the next uh, time there's a federal election. Um, and of course, you know, the U.S.-Australia alliance has longstanding bipartisan support in the Australian government. Uh, but I'm wondering what sorts of shifts in Australian foreign policy would you expect to see under a labor government? Um, what, what I would say, and this is this is... This doesn't just apply to a Labor government, this applies to any incoming new government in Australia. There is always a temptation when a government comes in to want to reset everything with China. And we often learn that, one, it is impossible to reset you know, something with a country as significant as China, but two, um, resetting simply just means that you re-examine all the options and you substantially come back to the same option, but you've kind of lost some time in between. Mm -hmm. um, on, on the China issue, uh, in, you know, with respect to foreign policy aspects of, of, of our relation with China, with the current leadership group in the Labor Party, they have fairly similar views to the current government, and they honestly do. And... You know, obviously, I obviously worked in the in the foreign policy side of things. It wasn't a, a unpleasant working relationship at all. In fact, it was quite cooperative. Um, so I didn't, with the current personnel, that can change if the leadership in the Labor Party changes. With the current, um, you know, two or three people who will define current, uh, who will execute foreign policy, um, it's pretty similar to the government. And I would say the foreign policy white paper, the government made um, a very good effort at uh, explaining things to the Labor Party. And when a white paper was launched, um, to our surprise, the Labor Party largely endorsed it, which is not common right, in, in democratic polities. Um, so I, I wouldn't anticipate a lot of change unless there's a change of personnel within the leadership of the Labor Party. And it doesn't take a lot. I mean, you know, change one or two people and policy can change. Yeah. Hi, my name is Kwan Nguyen with uh, Bao Group Asia. Thank you for your insights. 
Uh, I'm interested in getting your thoughts on the increasing Chinese influence in the Pacific Islands. And I think that, Ms. Glazy, you alluded to this a little bit with uh, Vanuatu, certainly with Fiji and also uh, PNG, the infrastructure investment with APEC this year. Is this a cause of concern for the U.S. and Australia, given the strategic locations of these islands? I think it's a cause of concern if um, it's a cause of concern if any look, countries are free to make whatever economic agreements they want, right? That's that's their right. But I think it's a it's a cause for concern if the agreements bind countries to agree to, to decisions that it wouldn't otherwise agree to because, for example, of debt structures or because they can't repay things or because they have to do debt for equity swaps in ways that um, tie down the kind of decisions they can make independently. So, so I, I, well, that's, that's the first thing. I think the second cause of concern is that, you know, Australia has always seen it as being in our interest to improve the sort of governance and transparency in these countries if um, if actions by other countries um, work against that you know by pouring lots of money into that country in, in a fairly intransparent account unaccountable way that doesn't tend to do great things for the institutions in those countries and from a from the Australian point of view, that would be a concern because um, it's not so much about what kind of governments they have, but we don't want governments that um, make decisions in a very intransparent and um, unaccountable way. I would just add that I think there is concern about good governance in the Pacific and uh, real economic development creation of uh, responsible um, institutions and uh, there is there are definitely questions about the ways in which uh, Chinese financing and assistance is provided to some of these countries and I think you know a decade ago the the bigger concern that the United States had and I know Australia shared was about competition between Taiwan and mainland China in the South Pacific and that was causing um, a lot of problems uh, because it was in, in part aimed at um, strengthening individuals or some groups over others. It really wasn't contributing to economic development and, and good governance. And uh, to some extent, some of that may now be coming back um, uh, with the tensions between Beijing and Taipei. So that's sort of another element that I think there's also concern about new set of concerns I think that the U.S. has and probably Australia has is about um, some of the military influence um, and the fact that the economic assistance may potentially be building support for more military access and strategic relationships that could be, yeah. be um, put our interests at risk. I mean, as you know, the South Pacific has been a locus of geopolitical contest for a very, very, very long time. And the United States, as we were discussing before the panel, um, doesn't do a very good job of producing expertise from that part of the world, with the exception, perhaps, of our friends at the East-West Center. Um, and when we talk about countries like Australia and New Zealand and the roles that they can play, um, because they have expertise, 
Uh, they don't just organize the South Pacific the way our people and the agencies and government and elsewhere in terms of strategic space, but actually have deep familial, civic, economic, and other kinds of relations with the islands. Um, and uh, there's an enormous role uh, that, that Australia and New Zealand can play in helping to create the economic alternatives to some of PRC's predatory um, economic agendas in that part of the world and beyond. And I suspect that that's going to become a locus of geopolitical contest um, much, much more in the coming years. Just quickly on the governance issues, I mean, Australia cares about it because if government governance becomes weaker and weaker in these countries, it becomes our responsibility. I mean, you saw that in Solomon Island, you saw that in Timor. You know, if, if there's ever weak or unstable situations in the Pacific, we're the ones that are in there paying for it, our troops are in there. So for us, it's not just about being paternalistic. It's actually our responsibility. Yeah. Sure, here, in the second row. Hi, Etienne Sula here at Hudson. Um, so France has uh, will be building uh, Australia's next submarines. The UK has reopened a lot of embassies in the Pacific Islands. Um, do you see a bigger role for Europe in this configuration, or do you see it as just a peripheral player? Um, I honestly think I, a European is probably better situated to answer that. I mean, we, we would like a bigger role for Europe, partly because of what I said um, in a context that, you know, Europe obviously has fairly similar kinds of goals and interests and outlooks to the kind of region they want. So from our point of view, in a very simplistic fashion, the more players like that, even if they don't completely align with what we do, the more players like that, the better. So I think it's, it's an open uh, secret. The Australian government has been encouraging uh, Britain and the French um, in particular to be more present, but I actually don't know whether um, the Europeans are, are likely to do so or not. I mean... You would probably, if you you would probably understand the European calculation more than I would, but we would certainly like to, like that. Great. Well, I really wanted to thank Bonnie and John for uh, everything for coming here and and really shedding a, an enormous amount of insight on these complex affairs. Um, thank you both for being here. Um, uh, thank you all for joining us as well, and uh, we hope you'll come back for the next event. Thank you. <laughs>